0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, folks. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. Our guest for today is Dr. Mark A. Johnson, author of Rough Tactics Black Performance and Political Spectacles, 1877 1932, published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2021. During the nadir of race relations in the United States South from 1877 to 1932, African Americans faced segregation, disfranchisement, and lynching. Among many forms of resistance, African Americans used their musical and theatrical talents to challenge white supremacy, attain economic opportunity, and transcend segregation. In Rough Tactics, Mark A. Johnson argues that African Americans, especially performers, retooled negative stereotypes and segregation laws to their advantage. From 1877 to 1932, African Americans spoke at public rallies, generated enthusiasm with music, linked party politics to the memory of the Civil War, honored favorable candidates, and openly humiliated their opposition. A little bit more about our guest, Dr. Mark A. Johnson is lecturer at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. So thanks for talking with us today, Dr. Johnson.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, I think our listeners will enjoy hearing more about your book. Um, But before we get to that part, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself?
0: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Um, So I'm from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I've done my degrees at uh, Purdue, uh, Maryland, and then finally, my PhD at the University of Alabama. And uh, yeah, I teach at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Um, previously, I taught at Georgia State University. Um, I have a book on Alabama barbecue. And um, I'm excited that this book, uh, Rough Tactics, um, came out this year after a uh, more than a decade of work.
1: Yeah. And that actually leads really well to my next question, which was, you know, over that 10 year period, what was sort of the journey up to rough tactics? Like, right, like you just mentioned that you did previously a book on barbecue, and now you've gone to this project. So how did you kind of come to work on this topic for rough tactics?
0: So although this book came out second, um, in a lot of ways, it's my first book, um, because I started it. a long time ago. Uh, this project uh, found me in a lot of ways, actually. Um, when I was at the University of Maryland working on my master's, um, I was actually focusing on a much different time period in a much different way. I was uh, focusing a lot on um, gender in the revolutionary uh, period in the United States. Um, but I... As, uh I'm very lucky to have enrolled in um, Ira Berlin's research seminar there. Um, so I had this amazing opportunity, right, to work with just a major uh, force in the profession. So I wanted to pick something up his alley, right? I wanted to kind of go for the gold there. Um, I knew he was a... Uh, blues fan. I am a huge blues fan. Um, I, uh, love Memphis. Um, and so I just picked up a copy of WC Handy's, uh, autobiography and I found the story, you know, that, uh, many people, you know, people that know Handy and know the story of the early blues know, and that, He played for Boss Crump in Memphis for his mayoral campaign, and that song kind of became the first uh, kind of published, recognized, official blues song. Um, And Wright helped launch Handy as the father of the blues. And so I just had a lot of questions about this dynamic. Uh, What made this alliance between an upwardly mobile black musician, um, and a, um, Southern Democrat, um, in the Jim Crow South possible, right? What made this alliance possible? Um, how prevalent was this sort of behavior? Um, so I followed those questions, uh, for that original research seminar, uh, more than a decade ago. Um, So in a way, you know, that's the first way that this project found me instead of the other way around. Then I presented the research at a conference. I went to the conference because a friend invited me, went to the University of Alabama uh, to present it. Uh, Carrie Fredrickson chaired the panel and we had met earlier, earlier in the day. I'd been warned that she was from Wisconsin like me Um, And that she was a Green Bay Packers fan uh, who had just won the Super Bowl. Um, So we spent the whole day, you know, or, you know, a moment before the panel talking about sports. Uh, Then we had the panel. And then after the panel, she came up to me and said, I don't really care what you're doing elsewhere. Uh, You should come here and finish this project with me. Um, And I got home, submitted an application uh, and moved across the country.
1: All right. Yeah, that's quite a trajectory. (laughs) That's really cool. Um, I see what you're saying about how it found you in a lot of really kind of amazing ways, it sounds like. Um, I was curious, too, like, in the process, what were some of the challenges you felt like surfaced, like, in the actual, like, just research process?
0: Sure. So... um... I did a project that in a lot of ways uh, is possible now because of the ability to search digital collections for a single word um, or a single word. You know, unlike my peers who have different challenges um, and I, but I did not have like collections I could just go to and set up shop, right, in an archive for a month or three months or six months. Um, you know, I didn't have those sets of materials. Um, you know, I had to find single references in single newspapers about, you know, little local elections and things like that. So um, I'm, of course, in no way saying that, you know, what I did, it was harder, or easier. I'm just saying, you know, that was kind of frustrating, you know, when it came came to things like funding, you know, I couldn't really make a case that I needed to use this historical society for a month, right? Or, you know, I couldn't use this uh, collection for a semester. So, um, but on the flip side of that, right, um, you know, I could benefit from all these digitized newspapers and, uh, yeah, just really look for small instances that, you know, get mentioned once, um, and then forgotten. Um, but I was able to recover those stories.
1: Yeah. That's, I see what you're saying about like the scope of your book that I can't imagine trying to do something like this, even like 10 years ago, probably 15 years ago. Um, like you're talking about, that's really interesting to hear, um, about that process. So yay technology. Um, so a little bit more now shifting gears to, I guess, the content of your project, right? So just to kind of set the scene for our listeners here, can you talk about what was going on, you know, politically in the U S South in the late 19th century, right? Like how did these black musicians engage with some of the parties and movements that you summarize in chapter one?
0: Yeah, sure. Sure. For the stories in my book, I want uh, to mostly focus on the rise of the solid South, which refers to democratic dominance uh, in the Southern states. After Reconstruction ended, Democrats retook control of their states uh, by any means necessary, uh, including violence and intimidation. Uh, Once in office, they destroyed Black voting rights on multiple levels, They made registration difficult, first and foremost, right, with poll taxes and other laws. Um, Then they intimidated Black men uh, who could register to vote. Uh, They installed things like white-only primaries, so even if Black men could vote and got all the way to the polls, Uh, They could only choose from candidates that had been curated by an all-white electorate. And finally, there's other levels, like the Republican Party lost its support in the South, lost its power in the region uh, because of the effectiveness of these laws. So even if black men overcame all these registration and other bureaucratic and violent uh, obstacles, uh, they often did not have candidates um, who represented them. Plus, on a national level, the Republican Party had changed a lot, right, from the party of Lincoln. Um, they had turned their backs on black equality as a major policy platform. Right, so in the so-called Solid South, um, many third parties and reform movements gained momentum. Uh, like prohibition, labor groups and parties, uh, and many more. So when these, these third parties split the white electorate, when the white electorate split, when they did not vote, you know, solidly democratic, right? On these sorts of issues, um, Democrats went one way and the other. Uh, African-Americans, even in small numbers, really mattered. And, both sides of these sorts of issues like prohibition or labor uh, courted black voters, especially on the municipal level. Uh, So, you know, in city politics, these one party races or seemingly one party races um, still included African Americans. Uh, The candidates would charge each other with nefarious practices and, mobilizing black votes Uh, but in reality um, these candidates competed to register and mobilize small numbers of black voters in machine style city politics while they did not offer anything close to equality in return they did make small concessions through patronage like the hiring and appointing of some black officials and office holders or services like black parks black hospitals Um, things like that. So in this context, I found a vibrant, spectacular political culture uh, in which African Americans made themselves literally uh, visible and audible.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. And, you know, kind of pointing back to the book's title, right? Like this is sort of what you're getting at by that phrase, rough tactics,
0: Yes, so they, uh, the white press, used this term "rough tactics," among other terms, um, to describe uh, these sorts of uh, so-called nefarious practices. Um, they uh, condemned uh, things like marching to the marching together to the polls, um, marching as clubs, right to cast votes mobilizing um black voters um they lamented like black parades and spectacles um and yeah they used the term rough tactics um yeah as a derogatory for um not exactly voting uh but for all these uh spectacle-like events that surrounded voting
1: Right. That's really interesting. And of course, you know, like you were talking about with your research process, I thought it was really interesting how you spell this out in these kind of like localized situations like you were talking about, right? Like, you know, in chapter two, you look at what's going on, like you were talking about a minute ago, like prohibition in central Georgia around 1885 to 1898. So going back to the idea of spectacle, what kinds of political spectacles did you see going on in Georgia? Um at that time.
0: Sometimes um, African Americans exhibited some surprisingly uh bold and aggressive behavior at uh elect at political spectacles, which includes election day uh rituals and spectacles, um, and other moments where people um put on a show or Uh, make themselves part of the public sphere um, in a very invisible and audible way, like campaign rallies, um, parades, um, pole erecting ceremonies. Uh, They competed to, um, you know, erect banners and things like that um, in towns and compete um, to, um, you know, outdo their opponents. Uh, so this is the type of spectacular political culture that existed in the South around the turn of the 20th century. And African-Americans participated in all of it, uh, from the election day events uh, to the campaign events. Um, and then after the elections, ratifying the decisions in the streets uh, with celebrations and fireworks and things of that nature. So in central Georgia from 1885 to 1898, um, African-Americans exhibited some surprisingly bold and aggressive behavior toward uh, whites, um, especially white women. Um, In 1885 and 1887, African-Americans participated extensively in Atlanta and Fulton counties, uh, local option prohibition contests. Uh, they participated as voters. Like I said, this issue divided the white electorate. Um, so uh, with a divided white electorate, both sides really relied on just a few um, black votes uh, to uh, swing a otherwise um, tight election. They hoped that you know black voters would vote as a block, right, and tip the scales. Uh, so they participated as voters, uh, but they also contributed to the spectacle of it all. Um, during the campaigns, uh, they made their politics known on the streets, um, you know, with parades and marches. They made themselves seen and heard on the issues. Uh, on election day, they formed clubs. They marched to the polls together. They wore uniforms. Um, they um, set up uh, across from temperance singers um, to challenge them in so-called "quote" contests in music. Um, then, in eighteen ninety-eight, um, nearby Macon had its local option. Uh, election. So by this time, some things had changed in race relations uh, in the South. Uh, the region's white people had recently reinvigorated antebellum stereotypes of intemperate black men. During slavery, um, you know, pro-slavery Southerners had used this image of the pro of the intemperate uh, black man to justify enslavement and. Um, you know, it reflected their fear of insurrection and rebellion as well. Um, during the 1885 and 1887 Atlantic campaigns, however, that stereotype really, um, kind of disappeared, um, as both sides tried to court the voters, right? They didn't want to disparage these voters and condemn them. They needed them. Um, but by 1898, some things had changed. And so they revived that stereotype, first of all, um, in part because of rioting in army camps amid the spanish-american war happening at the time plus there were some other events that really um heightened already tense racial uh, situation Uh, just before this macon prohibition election the wilmington massacre occurred Uh, in wilmington north carolina white supremacists overthrew the fairly elected biracial government um, in, the, in the city. And during the Wilmington massacre, white supremacists killed hundreds of African-Americans. In response to this event, uh, you know, white supremacist Southerners um, really focused on the way to prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future was to just eliminate black voting. Uh, they saw that. Um, as the, you know, solution to um, avoiding these sorts of uh, racial problems moving forward. Okay, so in this local option election in Macon, the white residents of the town were really um, aware of the stereotype of Black intemperance. They were really uh, suspicious of Black voting. Um, And so these two things came together. Uh, meanwhile, amid all of this turmoil, uh, Southern politicians were vehemently defending lynching and protesting anti-lynching legislation. Um, they considered it the only solution to so-called Black bestiality, um, and they defended lynching as a means to protect white women. So with all this going on, um, Maconites, black and white, went to the polls, uh, to decide the future of prohibition in their city. Uh, on election day, the spectacle unfolded just as it always had with clubs carrying banners and wearing uniforms, um, singing songs, uh, almost like they're going to the stadium for a modern sport event, right, uh, so the election day spectacle went just as it usually had. And in this, on this occasion, uh, white female uh, temperance activists uh, set up outside each of the polling stations. They had church organs with them and they sang temperance hymns, right? They dressed in all white, you know, right? For purity and prohibition um, in opposition Uh, black musicians showed up across the street and rendered the air with discords and drowned out these white women. So in this context, uh, I think most people would expect this to only go one way, right? I think most people would expect a lot of intimidation, perhaps even some violence on an occasion like this. Uh, But that's not what happened. It was part of the ritual, it was part of the spectacle, and it was accepted. Um, So on the streets of Macon, these black men openly humiliated and harassed white women and they got away with it. Um, And so uh, this chapter uh, focuses on what made that possible, and um, just really highlights the aggressiveness and boldness of uh, some african americans at a time when uh we usually associate black um political behavior with like court challenges and community uplift right through building up churches and schools and uh but this presents us with a different sort of um black activism one that's very public very loud um, and very bold.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for laying that out for us. I think y'all need to read this book. Y'all need to read about that (laughs) because it's pretty remarkable. Um, the, you know, situation that the way the spectacle operated, like you were talking about, is just really fascinating, um, for that time. And I also found as well, like the next section that really interesting is too, you know, you call it the bridge in which we're shifting gears now to New Orleans, right? Like, and you talk about how black musical labor was disputed for a 1903 United Confederate veterans reunion. So can you also kind of talk about how this played out and what did all of this reveal about how black musicians were being perceived in that space?
0: Yeah. So this section, um, helps us understand what made these alliances possible and even desirable from both sides and what made them acceptable. Right? How did these Black musicians, like in Macon, right, where they exhibited this bold and aggressive and even maybe threatening behavior, what allowed them to get away with it? Um, So in this section, I'm able to start to answer those questions. So in 1903, uh, the United Confederate Veterans held their annual reunion in New Orleans, a city famous for its music, its black music in particular. And they needed musicians uh, for uh, their festivities, in New Orleans, the musicians had unionized. They had uh, separate but cooperating um, chapters of the American Federation of Musicians uh, along in you know, race racial lines. Well, the white union could not supply enough musicians to meet the UCV's demands. But like I said, the white union and the black union cooperated. Uh, per their uh, constitutional guidelines. Um, so they offered to supply black musicians uh, to meet the number. And uh, the UCV, um, unsurprisingly, balked at that. They did not want black musicians at their parade. But this story uh, reveals, like I said, what makes these black-white alliances possible Um even when they seem unlikely, when the story hit the hit the news, uh, Confederate veterans did two things. Uh, they came to the defense of the black musicians. They portrayed the black music as desirable. They connected it to a romanticized image of the old South, in which um, plantation, um, you know, enslaved people. Willingly, right in their words, made music for their, in their words, beloved masters. They recalled, you know, antebellum balls and other parties in which uh, they danced all night to the music made by enslaved people. So they re- so first they recalled these and romanticized uh, these moments of the old South, and they. Use that image, um, yeah, they revived that image uh, for uh, their purposes in, the own, in their current moment, right, to, you know, they portrayed slavery as the um, natural relationship between black and white, uh, and implicitly they suggested that they should return to that uh, condition, right, So on one hand, yeah, they mythologize, romanticize black musicians made and their music made um, for their white masters. But on the other hand, they worked to prevent these black musicians from participating uh, because they knew that this was not just a social event like an antebellum ball. Uh, They knew Uh, that these reunions had political implications. Uh, They knew that uh, also that the presence of professional black musicians, unionized professional black musicians, would undercut the image, right, of the enslaved black musician who willingly um, and eagerly made music for his master and his family. So um, on one hand, right, they desire this music. They portray it as superior, um, as an authentic remnant of an antebellum, um, enslaved past. Uh, But they know that it's not the same, that it's professional, urban, um, unionized music. And so they also reject it. So they try to separate social and political power uh, and events. Uh, the veterans portray the reunion as a social event. So out of one side of their mouth, they can say that they want this sort of music and that it wouldn't entail any sort of equality and wouldn't mean anything. In fact, the opposite, that it would reassert, right, white kind of paternalism toward black people. But on the other hand, they just absolutely reject, um, the professionalization of it all and that the union black musicians can set the rates, right. And, uh, set the terms of the deal. So this 1903 reunion helps us understand what made these black white alliances possible, right? So at these political spectacles at lost cause spectacles, uh, white, Um, Southerners got what they wanted. They got to revive stereotypes of feckless Black musicians who willingly made music for their masters during slavery. Um, They got to justify further um, supremacy over Black people. But African Americans got what they wanted out of these arrangements as well. They... Uh, got to assert their professional status, they got paid, Um, they got to integrate their music into the national mainstream, they got to play for large white audiences, Um, they got to showcase their their talents, their music, Um, and right in a period of limited economic opportunity, uh, they gained money, but also... Uh, fame and recognition. So, uh, in this chapter, I focus on how African Americans played this role of sort of the faithful slave, um, but to their own ends, to achieve economic, uh, mobility, um, and success to achieve local or regional fame and notoriety, um, and to, um, advance their culture, right. To integrate their culture into, uh, you know, the national, you know, music.
1: Exactly. And it also kind of, you know, is that pivot point, you know, going further into the 20th century. Um, but to like, you're talking about like things are starting to continue to change and, you know, the next chapter as well, you go a little bit further in chapter three um, looking at different, you know, events from 1909 to 1932. Um, so how did you see, you know, in this time frame? You know, what kind of spectacles were African-Americans using to, you know, express, for instance, political power in the face of the Democratic Party, you know, against the lost cause yet again, um, and for the labor movement in World War I? You know, so what was going on here um, from this 1909 to 19, 1932 period?
0: So by this time, uh, two things had changed. Um... By 1909, white legislators in the South had completed uh, disfranchisement in all the states of the former Confederacy. They also, uh, on a national level, uh, election reformers had um, eliminated a lot of the uh, popular politics, as historians have called it, or the spectacles of the period. They um, lamented that politics had been carried out by the masses in this sort of way with lots of parades and rallies and marches with clubs uh, marching to the polls with uh, costumes and uh, ballots printed by the parties on different colored paper as a form of advertisement. Uh, So in the early 20th century election reformers really condemned this sort of style of politics they wanted elections to be somber intellectual affairs where uh, unbiased uh, voters who had considered all the possible sides right, came to an intelligently reasoned decision and had exercised uh, uh, their right to vote, Yeah, like I said, in a somber, serious way, um, in secret. Right. So these two things, uh, form these two developments form the backdrop of this third chapter or the second part of this book. Um, so by this time, Democrats had just total control of the South and popular politics, spectacular politics was supposed to have disappeared. Um, but it did not. Okay, so I challenged both this idea of the Solid South and this idea of the demise of popular politics. Um, so in the uh, so-called Solid South, uh, the same sort of reform movements from the 19th century continued to divide the white electorate, like Prohibition, uh, which um, you know, was accomplished in 1919, uh, labor movements, Um, divide the white electorate, um, you know, and there's other third parties uh, that spring up and uh, briefly challenge democratic uh, power in the region. And so whenever the white electorate uh, got divided, African-Americans had a role to play for sure. Uh, Not only in the streets, but in the uh, ballot boxes as well. But even when Democrats had seemingly total control of an issue of an election of a region, a place, when Democrats faced off against each other, African-Americans still had a role to play. Um, The Democratic politicians wanted to revive those old South and antebellum racial norms. Uh, So they invited black performers to play at their rallies and campaign events. In that faithful slave role. Uh, Usually African-Americans played that role as assigned. They earned a couple bucks, advertised their music and their talents, um, you know, showcased their uniforms, uh, and helped integrate their music into the national mainstream by playing for white audiences. So they both got out of these spectacles what they wanted, right? The white politicians got to portray themselves as kind of benevolent characters um, and sort of help their audiences uh, romanticize the old South and maybe, you know, aspire to revive those sort of norms. Uh, but Meanwhile, African-Americans got what they wanted to Um they got professional status and economic opportunity. Like I said, they usually played the role as assigned. Uh, W.C. Handy talked about this playing for James K. Vardaman, um, who was even in an era of white supremacy, uh, really famous for his white supremacy, um, perhaps even uh, so um, racist that he uh, He was kind of an outcast, um, but Handy played for him. And he talked about, you know, they played the gig. They sat through the speech and heard all the nasty things. They played again as the crowd walked out of the meeting hall or the rally and they got paid and they got to showcase their talents and um, show off their new uniforms and things like that. So um like I said, they usually played it as assigned, but sometimes they did not. Sometimes uh, they took those opportunities and turned them on the, uh, you know, white supremacist candidate who had hired them. They'd play like Union War anthems, right, to humiliate a Southern politician. They... Um, you know, maybe played discords as loud as possible so that no one could hear the speech. Uh, they did all these sorts of things to upset right, and just harass um, these white supremacist candidates um, at their own events. Or opponents would hire them to show up at the other candidate's event to do these sorts of things. So um, in the third chapter, uh, I focus a lot on political rallies uh, where there's white speakers, um, but there's black musicians there or other black performers there um, to either support the candidate or humiliate and oppose that candidate. Because even when Democrats faced off against each other, uh, there was usually a preferred candidate. Um, they would have at least you know one of these candidates Usually the challenger, right, to an incumbent, knew that he had to do something to shake up the status quo, right, and overturn the election from the, you know, previous cycle. You know, so the challenger would usually court some black votes to help get over the hump. And, you know, they did not, um, like I said, concede anything like equality, uh, but some patronage, perhaps some services, And in this machine style politics of the era, um, you know, black voters, black musicians, black performers could help a candidate um, get over the hump.
1: Yeah. And in all this, you know, there's been one key figure um, that has come up a few times, W.C. Handy, right? Um, And you kind of get more into his situation in chapter four with the Memphis campaign of, uh, Edward Crump, um, from which we get the Handy song. So can you talk a little bit more, you've been talking about it a little bit, but can you kind of elaborate a little bit more about, you know, what was going on with Handy and these different political spaces and that song, for instance?
0: Um, so I wrote this book to, Uh, figure out this relationship between Handy, an upwardly mobile black musician, and uh, Boss Crump, a a white Southern Democrat in Memphis. Uh, I wanted to figure out what made their alliance possible, what both sides would get out of something like this, and how often these circumstances played out across the South um, at the time period. So in 1909, uh, Crump runs for mayor of Memphis. He, his campaign hires um, a uh, handy and his band to uh, mobilize uh, black voters um, in the Beale Street area. Uh, the other candidates hired black musicians as well. Uh, In the newspapers, they all charged each other with trying to register Black voters, Uh, but behind the scenes, they all tried to register Black voters. Uh, The bands set up shop on the city streets or in the uh, taverns, uh, which uh, played a vital role in the machine-style politics of Memphis. The, um, you know, they'd attract people to these registration sites. Uh, They'd pay the poll taxes, give them a ballot, um, and try to mobilize voters that way. In Memphis, uh, we get a little preview of kind of the switch from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party um, in terms of Black loyalty. In Memphis, uh, the Democratic Party had control, um, but... Usually one candidate or another would, uh, you know, try to make some sort of concession or try to promise some sort of, uh, you know, service or patronage in return for support. Uh, Also, Black Memphians had become disillusioned with the Republican Party. They started to view the Republican Party as uh, paternalistic, um, as disingenuous, uh, they were frustrated with the lack of progress since the Civil War. Uh, they were also frustrated with just the attitude of these white Republican politicians. Um, in one case, the uh, school board um, fired a principal. Uh, the, uh, in short, the Republican uh, party came to the defense. Of the um school board, uh, but the uh Democratic Party came to the defense of the uh black school teacher. So uh you start to see um the complexity of politics and the holes in the solid south um in Memphis in 1909. And so you got you start to see the appeal of perhaps someone like Crump or maybe a politician like him to um, African-Americans. Um, yeah, but meanwhile, Handy plays for Crump and his campaign. Uh, they, he composes a song um, and that song eventually becomes uh, yeah the first published blues song. So they help Crump into office. And uh, it launches both of their careers. Um, Crump dominates Memphis politics uh, and, in part, Tennessee politics from behind the scenes uh, for a long time. Uh, And Handy becomes a black music publisher and uh, the father of the blues. And so they're both connected at a political rally in 19, you know, at this political campaign in 1909.
1: Yeah. And I was kind of curious, you were talking about how you worked through Handy's, you know, autobiography and all this kind of stuff. Were there other, you know, prominent, like, you know, primary sources that you looked at for some of these black musicians, you know, to kind of get their perspectives on these spaces, like, you know, what other kind of uh, voices like Handies did you come across in your work?
0: Yeah, so I uh, found um, a lot of success with Black uh, newspapers. Uh, they would comment on these campaigns or these rallies uh, from a Black perspective. Uh, and they reveal, uh, you know, the Black interest in succeeding and uh, participating in these sort of events. Uh, going back to the 1903 UCV reunion, for example, the uh, Black newspapers across the country chime in on this event, on this dispute between the UCV and the unionized white and Black musicians uh, in New Orleans. And they boil it down to an economic um, an economic uh, argument the from their perspective the black musicians pay their dues to the Union they deserve Union protection and uh, they applaud the biracial Union uh, first uh, standing up to the UCV uh, right they view it through the lens of economic opportunity uh, when it comes to these sort of political events um, Chicago Defender uh, comments on these sorts of events across the country, and uh, they take it from a perspective of concessions and patronage. Um, They condemn white politicians who seek black votes and try to use black spaces like churches or black parks uh, to court to mobilize black voters but do not pay black musicians for their campaigns. And so they make payment really a centerpiece of this arrangement. They are willing to throw support behind candidates as long as they play by black rules. And one of the, and these rules, you know, they're, you know, very. They're not very. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, they're they're asking for small concessions. If you're going to court and mobilize black votes, you have to pay black musicians for it, right? You have to go through these acceptable avenues that recognize black professionalism, um, black music as authentic and desirable culture, um, and things like that.
1: Yeah, thanks for talking about that. I was just kind of curious where you you know, you were talking about how much you were able to find, you know, with these different searches online and whatnot. So I was just curious um about those other perspectives. So thank you for sharing that. Um and you know, so far we've been talking about right like this like nineteenth century, early to mid twentieth century time frame. And of course, you know, in the epilogue you bring us more to the present day. Um, So can you talk about, you know, thinking about those discussions and epilogue and, you know, just kind of maybe your general thoughts, what resonances do you see from these different case studies you give us in the book to today, you know, in terms of how political spectacle continues to be exercised?
0: Yeah. I want to um, just sort of remind ourselves that, white election reformers tried to eliminate these spectacles and rituals as a form of voter suppression. They wanted to keep, you know, illiterate voters out of the electorate by making politics more intellectual. Um, They wanted to, I mean, right now, for example, you can't, in most states, wear a political, uh, shirt, right. To the election, uh, to the voting booths. Um, you can't announce your allegiances, right. Um, you can't openly campaign within a certain distance of the voting booths, um, and things like that. You know, right now you vote with a secret ballot, but back then you did not. Um, you had a colored ballot that announced your allegiances to everyone, And we sort of, um, praise the sort of, or praise the uh, new way of doing things, right? We just assume that the secret ballot, right, is a good thing. We assume that it's a good thing that you can't campaign at the voting booths and, um, I'm just trying to say that that's not all that simple, that those developments were designed to keep certain people out of the electorate, um, and that when politics was spectacular, African-Americans used the spectacle to make their voices heard when they could otherwise not um, express themselves, when they could not you know, pull the lever for a candidate. Uh, they still had ways of participating, like humiliating candidates or honoring candidates they preferred. So I still see this type of stuff happening. Um, for example, uh, the uh, KKK had a rally in Columbia, South Carolina, um, after the Charleston church shooting, Um, South Carolina took down the Confederate flag from their state capital and the KKK rallied um, in protest to keep that flag up. And um, a white man, a tuba player uh, followed the KKK and played humiliating music the whole time uh, to make fun of them. I also think about in 2016, uh, when a, a leading Trump supporter made a comment about uh, Mexican uh, culture as aggressive um, and portrayed the uh, doom of a Clinton presidency as taco trucks on every corner, right? In advance of a uh, Trump uh, rally in Uh, Reno, Nevada, uh, culinary workers uh, set up their taco trucks outside to prevent access to the building, right? They built a wall of taco trucks, right, to protest Trump. And so I wanted to focus on these sort of ways that seemingly powerless or less powerful people um, use public spaces to make their voices heard in one way or another.
1: Yeah. Thank you for talking about that. And I think folks would really, even though this was a while back, I think pick up on some of those resonances, um, reading that book for sure. Uh, I wanted to ask you too, now that you've gotten rough tactics done, what other projects are you working on?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, While I was writing the book on uh, Alabama barbecue, uh, a pit master just offhandedly complained about bacon. Um, He explained that bacon had become so powerful and therefore so pricey that uh, butchers, meat packers, had started cutting the belly further and further up, leaving less meat for spare ribs. Now, in Alabama, ribs are not baby back ribs. They're usually spare ribs. Uh, But some barbecue restaurants have had to change uh, because the spare ribs just keep getting smaller and smaller. And so at these restaurants that have been open for 50-something years, customers come in, order ribs, and they're baby back ribs, and they complain about that. And that's because bacon has made spare ribs uh, small. I got to thinking, how else has bacon changed our food ways? Um, So I am writing a book called American Bacon, and it's the story of bacon in the United States from a mundane staple for impoverished and enslaved people in the colonial period to a 21st century gastronomic and pop culture phenomenon.
1: That sounds amazing. I will look forward to reading that as well. (laughs) But thank you for. Joining us on New Books and Music, Dr. Johnson, it was a pleasure to uh, talk with you today.
0: Yes, thank you for having me. I'm so glad you reached out and I had a lot of fun talking about this book with you.
1: Yeah. And just listeners, as a recap, this was an interview with Dr. Mark A. Johnson, author of Rough Tactics, Black Performance and Political Spectacles, 1877 to 1932, published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2021. And this is Emily Allen, and I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network.